Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Osiris. The time has come for you to be the guest on Comes a Time. Wednesday, November 17th, 9pm, exclusively on Moment House. Join us for the inaugural Comes a Time Crystal Ball from the Wizard's Castle. Mike and Otil will be consulting my crystal ball that will be filled with your questions, your stories, and your pretty faces. What will the questions be? Well, that depends on you. Head on over to MomentHouse.com for details. Hey, Mike, I, I can't see clearly. Is that a lightning bolt on your shirt? You're damn right it is, Otil. This is Section 119. Hey guys, we just got our hands on some great new gear from an officially licensed partner of the Grateful Dead, Section 119. Oh yeah, Section 119. They sent me a pair of board shorts. They're actually really cool. I actually uh, wore them on stage and uh, they were really comfortable. You know, I live in board shorts in Florida, so that's kind of my jam. And uh, these have a cool print on them. Bertha's on there and the roses and stuff. I really like them. I got one of the performance polos with the Grateful Dead bolt embroidered in the chest. It's super stretchy, and I love the way it feels when I'm on stage wearing it. I feel like I'm representing the dead and rocking out some jokes in style. Section 119 was started by a couple of fans who wanted more than a lot tea to show their appreciation for the Grateful Dead. They started an apparel line that has everything you can imagine to represent the band at every occasion. And not just the dead, they've got some amazing fish duds as well. From button downs with dancing bears all over it, to board shorts with super vibrant prints and donuts all over your shirts and socks, they've got something for every fan for any occasion. If you're looking for more than a t-shirt to celebrate the Grateful Dead, the folks at Section 119 make the highest quality apparel. Boogie on over to section119.com and use code COMESATIME. That's all one word, comes a time, for 15% off your next purchase. Hey, this is Oteal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time Podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Oteal, coming to you still from on the road. Inside another hotel. How you doing, pal? I'm doing just great, man. We got four shows left and nobody's gotten infected from this variant. And yeah, let me knock on this wood because I'm hoping we get a perfect record for this year. Yeah. But how are you doing? Feeling. I'm doing all right, man. I'm doing all right. Been uh, performing and I've got some big road gigs coming up uh, that I'm getting excited about and uh, 
feeling good, man. Feeling really good. Uh, we had a great episode today. We were uh, joined by um, Gary Lambert, who, I mean, an absolute oracle when it comes to music and cultural history, but also one half of the Tales from the Golden Road uh, duo on the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius XM, David Gans and himself take calls. And uh, boy, they are amazing. Some of the calls are just out of this world. Some of them are so <laughs> incredibly beautiful. And I, I'm a I'm an avid listener. I love the show. And uh, it's quite an <laughs> interesting some job great, they uh, got. But some great, uh, oh, bless their heart calls. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. They're masters of that. <laughs> They've had a couple of really interesting calls. Like, for instance, I heard one guy call. And he said he wanted to get his mom a ride on the bus, like on a bus. Anybody that had a bus, a cool bus, a painted bus, come pick his mom up and drive her around before, you know, it was her time to head into the other the other world, you know. And people reached out. People wow. heard on the radio show him ask. And then he called back in and was like, just to let you guys know, thank you. We had someone come pick her up and took her. Oh. And it was just like – Things like that, beautiful things like that happen on his on their radio show too. And then every couple calls, they get a you know, hey, anybody Uh-oh. else, you know, Jerry, look at them during you know, fire on the mountain and tell them the secret about Illuminati and, and they're they're like, all right, next caller. <laughs> I know okay. he's great, man. Yeah. That, that no, hour flew by too. Well, that's another the thing. one that I mean, flew yeah. by. I'm, I have a million personal questions to ask just about Gary, someone who like, I mean, his life is exactly what I, we talk in the episode about looking back on a time period or an era of music we wish we were able to see. And he grew up in New York City in the 60s and 70s. And that's exactly where I wanted to be <laughs> in that era. You know what I mean? Like that to be able to check out some of the, you know, the jazz shows and the folk shows and the Fillmore East and all that stuff. My God. I mean, what an incredible place to be at his age and time. So he was at Grand Zero. Stories. Between him and my dad, my dad was born in 31 in the Bronx. So, you know, all the jazz stuff, the jazz stuff he yeah. saw, yeah. Oh, the, the birth of bebop, um, Birdland yeah. shows and stuff. I, I want, I wish I could have got Lambert together with my dad sometimes just to watch them geek out them together. Chat. But yeah. yeah, he's a great, a great, uh, living history book and a great guy. Yeah. He's got an incredible yeah. spirit and, uh, you could tell he's, you know, speaking straight from his heart. So uh, mm-hmm. thank you so much, Gary. And if you have Sirius XM, everyone, please tune in and listen on Sundays. I think it's 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, on the Dead Channel, Tales from the Golden Road. God, it's amazing. I love call-in shows. I mean, I'll listen to like <laughs> old, like, you know, uh, sports radio call-in shows just because it's interesting to think about the people who are calling into a radio yeah. show. Like they almost kind of have this like, can I make them laugh right off the bat? And then they try to tell their story that they think is so interesting and it falls flat. <laughs> and then they kind of have to go, but uh, I love your show. Thank you for everything. You know, it's just an interesting, that's an interesting relationship when it's like, you don't even know what the host is doing or, you know, it's just very wild, but uh, they do a great job. They do a really fantastic it. job. So, and Hey, not sure when this is airing, but 
we have a pretty incredible call-in event happening really soon, November 17th. Uh, it is going to be on Moment House, the inaugural crystal ball. Uh, and you guys are invited. So you can uh, find out more information at uh, comesatimepod.com and at momenthouse.com. You could send us your video questions and maybe appear in the crystal ball and we'll uh, take them and run with them. So join yeah, us. Because at there. the crystal ball, the guest is going to be you. That's the right. That's right. So we, we are really looking forward way. to that. Yeah, yeah, we want to connect with you guys. And uh, so that's the what first the crystal of ball is all about. That's right. So thank you, everyone. Thank you to the wizard. Thanks, Osiris, for having us on the network. And most of all, thank you, listeners. We love you and uh, stay safe. Enjoy, Gary. It's becoming more normalized now. Huh? Yeah. You know, when, when Lemieux and I did the uh, shakedown stream last year, you know, we, uh, we were also, he was coming from British Columbia. I was here, our engineer, I think was in the DC area. Um, and uh, we, uh, and then, you know, like on one of the shows, we brought in Sam Cutler from Australia. And I thought this is going to be a catastrophe. Uh, and I was amazed at how, how well it worked. It was, it was kind of shocking. <laughs> You were saying earlier, you're going to be sad because the tour is almost over. Yeah. Well, kind of. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll have plenty to fill the time with. You know, I won't be I won't be mourning the tour at home. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I feel tired. I'm like, yeah. I'm re- it's really I'm really proud that we made it through without anyone getting infected and yeah. not having to cancel any shows and stuff. Yeah. You know, and the shows have been fun. Yeah, they've been great. And I mean, there's never been a tour like this where it was like summer tour ends three weeks off and then fall tour. Yeah, there was usually a big, much bigger time to rest. So this was this was a real marathon. Yeah, well, maybe that's why I feel this way. (laughs) Right. And all the isolation and well, that's the the isolation. Yeah, that that part, you know, we O'Teal and I have talked a lot about how, like, you know, there's the the comedian goes on the road by himself anyway. Right. And you're kind of like, you don't have a band to hang out with, but it does get to a point in a band where you kind of start going off on your own and isolating and doing your own thing and whatever. And this time you had to, and, and we were talking, you know, every day just about how it feels and what it's like and stuff. And it's just, you mentioned it the other night when we did dead air, O'Teal, just how like going on stage, that's like, you're seeing people for the first time. All day. Yeah. Yeah. Except maybe yeah. someone that brought you food. Yeah. I mean, or you see people from afar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it was, it was interesting to hear you say that about it being, you know, the refuge from, from the isolation because the, the opposite view of that, you know, I, I talked about this with, with mayor a bit and, and it was kind of like the benefit of it was the focus was completely on the work, you know, cause backstage can be mm-hmm. so damn distracting you know, and, mm-hmm. and break, you know, okay, we're going to bring you to do this meet and greet now. And, you know, and, and people want to come to the dressing room and say hello and all that. So you guys, you guys couldn't escape the music. <laughs> you know, it was like, that was, that, that was the, it was just the job was what was what you were there for as opposed yeah. to all, all the peripheral stuff. And it's the only time you're going to get to like really feel great all day. I think that's why right, right. 
I didn't have any off nights. I had one off night that was, uh, um, I got a migraine, oh. like right before the second set started. I think it was the second night of, uh, of, um, red rocks. Mm-hmm. So it was also freezing cold, you know? Right. And, and it's just yeah, like, <laughs> that was my, that's my first time. I was just like, man, really feel off because we haven't had any off nights really? you're just when that uh specter is hanging over your head that oh someone might get infected and this the whole thing is going to get canceled now tonight might be the last night you like have a great night because <laughs> you feel like right. it might actually be the last yeah no full on it's strange but it's, it's a drag uh not being able to see either of you there usually I get to see you, Gary. I know, know man. At some point, I've, that's that I've missed. I mean, doing this has been such a blast, and you know, <laughs> no wear and tear on me. <laughs> I, I I go from the kitchen to the couch, you know. But uh, <laughs> but it's uh, it, it it really you know the social aspect of it, and you know then they have shots of the rail, and there are friends of mine on the rail watching <laughs> you guys. They say, oh, I I, I I could be hugging that cute girl right now. <laughs> So how did yeah. you come to this whole Grateful Dead thing, Gary? Because when when I've talked oh, to you about music, we end up talking more like Sun Ra, you know, or yeah. that, that kind of stuff. Well, the Grateful Dead was kind of like so much of the music I had already loved converging in one place. Mm, you know, yeah. uh, I was lucky enough to, you know, have influences. You know, my, my parents had, you know, Beethoven around and they had, and, but they also had like a Benny Goodman album around. And that was like some of my first exposure to jazz. And then I started getting deeper into more interesting and more adventurous jazz, you know, more contemporary in the sixties. Um, and I was discovering all this stuff right around the time that things went crazy in rock, you know, the psychedelic stuff came in, the Beatles made Sergeant Pepper, you know, but even before that, I mean, one of the ways I try to calibrate why I'm as weird as I am is I, I got turned on the Beatles and Charles Ives at the same time, like (laughs) simultaneously because everyone got turned on to the Beatles. You know, there wasn't a lot of Charles Ives on the charts at the time, but, (laughs) but my older brother was at Columbia university and he had this uh, roommate who was like, from this old New England family. And he said, oh, there's this great old New England composer named Charles Ives. He wrote really weird music in the early part of this century. And he turned my brother onto it. My brother turned me onto it in return. Mm-hmm. And it was so unlike, you know, anything that anyone had ever heard. You know, I mean, like Ives' music yeah. was this incredibly dense, you know, multiphonic, polyphonic, dissonant, you know, part of an orchestra playing in one key, part of an orchestra playing in another key. Yeah. Uh, you know, just like different rhythms converging on each other, you know, and he was like, just trying to convey some of the chaos of humanity and nature and all that. And it just blew me away right away. It never sounded dissonant to me. I was just fascinated yeah. right away, you know, and so, some of that I attribute to the music I love from like Warner brothers cartoons, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> like, like that music yeah. was so intense and so cacophonous. And so, for some reason, I was prepared for Charles Eyes. I was obviously prepared for the Beatles. And then, you know, a, a few years later, rock starts getting more sophisticated. And into this comes the San Francisco bands. And it, 
uh, I was also into jug band music before I knew mm. the Grateful Dead were into it because yeah. I was sort of at the tail end of the great folk scare, you know, uh, I, and, you know, I, 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 I think, I think Martin Mull coined, coined that term and I've always loved it. You, you folks remember the great folk scare. He used to say. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, yeah, I love the Jim Queskin jug band. Uh, which turned out to have been the source for Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, the first place where Bob and Jerry and Pigpen came together. Uh, you know, they, they, were not, they were not covering Gus Cannon's <clears throat> Jug Stompers or the Memphis Jug Band. Uh, or, or the, They were covering the Jim Queskin Jug Band, and then later they discovered the deeper stuff. So yeah. any, anyway, they had all these amazing influences, you know, and they had Pigpen as the resident blues man and all that. So I heard a little, I didn't, plunge right into the Grateful Dead when the first album came out. You know, I heard Morning Dew and really loved it and heard a few of the tracks on that album. Uh, but it wasn't until I saw them live that, you know, the little cosmic firecracker went off. You know, I and, saw, was, and where was that? Where was your first show? Uh, so poetically, by, I saw them for the first time by accident um, <laughs> because all I knew on the morning of May 5th, 1968, was the Jefferson Airplane was playing a free concert in Central Park because my brother had been at Fillmore East the night before and the airplane announced that they and some friends, I don't even think they named the other friends, were going to play in Central Park. So my brother calls me. I'm home here in Queens on a Sunday morning. He says, man, hop on the subway. Jefferson Airplane's going to play. And I said, oh, cool. You know, so because I hadn't seen them live yet. So I, you know, luckily the subway was operating efficiently that day and I, you probably got to Central Park in about 45 minutes or something like that. Uh, and what I catch is the tail end of a set by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, which I had also never seen live and who I love from records. So that was great. Uh, and then the Jefferson Airplane comes on and they were amazing. You know, they were sort of at a peak at that period. Uh, and they finish playing and I get up to leave. And Marty Ballin says, hey, stick around. The Grateful Dead are coming up next. And I say, okay, I think I can spare another hour or so. You know? <laughs> and, and they came on. And I think maybe because of the sensory overload of seeing those three bands for the first time, <laughs> yeah. the Dead were my favorite that day. But <clears throat> you know, it wasn't like I'm an instant deadhead. I'm going to follow them around for the rest of my life. That, that was more gradual, but I loved them. <clears throat> you know, And a lot of the material they played was unknown because Anthem of the Sun hadn't come out yet. And they were concentrating on playing material from that. I did recognize Morning Dew and I recognized Turn On Your Love Light. Um, and they finished with We Bid You Good Night. I remember that pretty vividly. And then there was all this other amazing music, which, which you know, I hadn't heard yet, which no one had heard on the East Coast yet. I guess they'd been playing it live, but, you know, they were still developing it. And, you know, I was blown away by the fact that there were two drummers, you know, and... Uh, and the way they played was so unconventional in the rock world. So, you know, I was I was very impressed and I started getting hooked more gradually. The second time I saw them, they were at Fillmore East and it was a really interesting situation because they were opening for Janis Joplin. And mm -hmm. it was it was Janis Joplin's big coming out party after she left Big Brother and the Holding Company and was making her first appearances as a solo artist. And it didn't really go that well. Her band was not really mm. together. You know, she was trying to do kind of a, a, a Memphis, like a Stax Volt soul review kind of sound, but the musicians weren't competent enough to nail that, you know, and when you're trying to do that stuff, you know, 
it's got to be tight and it wasn't you tight. gotta do it right yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but the dead came the dead came on and the dead were under the constraint that they had to play exactly an hour each each show <laughs> you know it's four shows four shows of film four shows on a weekend of film more east two nights two shows each wow eight, eight o'clock eleven thirty uh and the dead nailed it they uh, they played i think they played like 59 minutes and 45 seconds or something like that you know and and they were incredibly tight and yet they contained like everything you'd want from the grateful dead universe in this really concisely played set and i just thought they were brilliant I, so i came away you know, I, I went to that show much more heavily in anticipation of janice but it was the dead that blew me away that night and then a few months later is when i just reached that no turning back point where they played some shows in june of 69 and I walk into Fillmore East for the first of those. And the first thing I hear is a pedal steel guitar. And like, wait, <laughs> wait, <laughs> this is like the weirdest, most psychedelic band in the world. And they're playing the green, green grass of home, you know, with, <laughs> with, with Bobby Weir doing his best George Jones. And I was like completely baffled by this, but also loved it. And I thought, well, this is as radically avant-garde as, as anything they could do <laughs> in the context of being the Grateful Dead. That's right. And, <laughs> and, and, and during one of those two shows, I, I saw both shows on the night of, uh, of June 21st. And I remember toward the end of one of those sets, this guy who had obviously timed his dose to Dark Star or something like that. You know, the, and the, the dead were playing their third country weeper of the set. And this guy is like stalking toward the exit saying, they're turning into a bunch of goddamn cowboys. <laughs> So, so this guy got off the bus at that moment. <laughs> I hope he came back. Yeah, there's enough places in the there's enough places in the East Village for him to go, probably to yeah. enjoy that weirdness. Yeah. So, but it was at, so that was it. That 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 summer of '69 was <laughs> the, the turning point. I said, I'm going to see this band every time I can. You know, anytime they're within reach of me. And I saw amazing shows that summer. I also saw the famously <laughs> unsuccessful set at Woodstock. Um, uh, wow. But but, but I, I, I hated I hated Woodstock. So my sympathies were with the dead anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, um, um, my laptop is stacked up on three books, uh, the complete works of Shakespeare. Jerry Garcia, the collected artwork, and Amelie Rothschild's live at the Fillmore East. I'm and in there. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's and and you know what's so funny is that like for a while I lived in the East Village, right near the corner. I lived off Second Ave, and I every day would walk by the Apple Bank that is that was the Fillmore East, you know, right. and hairdressers that lived in the neighborhood forever that I would stand outside with when I smoked cigarettes and talked and whatever. I'd always geek out about the Fillmore East and they would tell me about how they would go to shows and for $2 and 50 cents or $3, you get to see the mothers, Everyone. Santana, the almonds all in one night. Yeah. And there's peanut butter and jelly sandwiches made by the folks that work there and chocolate milk yes. and just this for like 10 cents. And, and, you know, I'm just, I'd love to hear your take on, you know, I walked that street day in and day out fantasizing about being in the pictures that I look at in Amelie's book. And yeah. if you could just tell me a little bit about 
that vibe in the East Village when the Fillmore East was there and just how it felt to have that place to go. Well, the village and the East Village in general was, you know, just my my playground and my church and all that stuff. You know, I, I was going to high school on the Upper West Side. And I would often walk from high school to the East Village, which was probably about seven miles, you know. Wow, yeah. And just, you know, and, and just go and hang and, you know, find live music, you know, that that uh, you could get into if you were uh, 18 or younger. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is the Fillmore East, some people considered it too big, you know, because <laughs> you could go to the Cafe Agogo or the Bitter End and see amazing bands. I saw the dead at the Cafe Agogo, which I think held maybe... I think they list they they said they held 400, but I think 250 would have been a higher a fire hazard. And I I saw that wow. that was my that was my single deepest immersion in 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 going to dead shows because I I saw them do four shows at Fillmore East um, in a weekend, you know, two nights, four shows over two nights. This is late September. Then I then I took a night off. I can't remember if the band played somewhere else, but then. I saw six shows in three nights at the Cafe Agogo. So that was like 10 mm. Grateful Dead shows over the space of, you know, <laughs> slightly over a week. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were all great. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I mean, an important thing about the village. And I mean, I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I'd grown up anywhere but New York, because just the cultural advantages that were just commonplace to me you know museums and broadway shows and then you know getting to go to the rock clubs and the jazz clubs would become very important in my life you know so so that that had an enormous uh effect on shaping who i was the Fillmore itself you know i loved it um it was funny yeah you know, bill graham who's you know the greatest costume promoter of all time was considered a villain, you know, because he he he, he, he raised the prices of Fillmore East from five bucks to five fifty top, you know, and that was like considered just the outrage of all time, highway um, robbery. Yeah, you, you know, and uh, but you know, but Bill, the, the thing I noticed about Bill almost from the beginning was his attention to detail, you know, and what he gave back to the customers, and you know, the, the sound was going to be best, the lights were going to be best, uh, you know. He had he had a fraught relationship with artists, including the Grateful Dead. They were always, you know, like it was like the weirdest love hate thing ever. You know, they were always pushing each other's buttons and always trying to get over on each other. You know, and the Grateful Dead started playing the Capitol Theater in Portchester specifically to, you know, to stick it to Bill a little bit, you know, so 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 that he wouldn't be the dominant force in New York. I mean, the cap the Capitol really, really ascended because there was kind of a, you know, don't, don't let Bill dominate you know kind of sentiment among a lot of bands but 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 yeah bill bill always did it better than anyone else and uh and you notice that film worries i love yeah what you said about the concessions they had these like giant chocolate chip cookies uh and and dan and yogurt that was like that to me discovering the sublime pleasures of dan and yogurt when you were really stoned and really hungry (laughs) was, was you know uh just just a revelation to me you know so uh blueberry yogurt saves oh, the oh, day. fruit at the absolutely. bottom absolutely you got that you got that you got that weed dry mouth and you get some dadded yogurt in you and it'll 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 solve everything <laughs> you know it's 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 pretty amazing to think about like if you were to take third or fourth um all the way across to the West Village, you know, mm-hmm. like that's where doing stand up comedy and starting out in the city, you kind of learn 
a city within the city where I can get from this club to this club if I go this way or cut this route or whatever. And the walk from – there's a club on 2nd Ave and 4th and then there's the cellar and the village underground and Fat Black Pussycat and all that stuff, which is like 3rd and McDougal. Yeah. So I would walk down 4th and then cut over at like Great Jones and head over there. And I always am fascinated by the f- people who walked before me on these streets yeah. or the people who maybe ran, did Kerouac run around down here with Cassidy and the, you know, like all that stuff I'm always thinking and, you know, like where did Miles Davis play and where did all that? So it's kind of interesting to think about how in New York city is just like, I think sometimes when I see people running around, little kids running around New York city, I'm like, what was it like to grow up here? Like being yeah. a child in Manhattan must've been just so amazing. Queens and Manhattan, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was, as I said, just indispensable in, in shaping who I was. And of course, also there was the added thing of my burgeoning political consciousness. And of course, a lot of the political action was focused in the village. Um, you know, I ran with the yippies for a little while, which was amazing, you know, uh, having some interaction with Abby Hoffman uh, and, and people like that. And, you know, you mentioned uh, what was it like to be here. There are still living links to that history, Wavy Gravy yeah. being a, a massive one. You know, back, back when he was Hugh Romney, he had, his apartment was above the Gaslight Cafe, which was one of the great oh, crucibles wow. of folk music. Uh, Bob Dylan crashed with him for a while. Um, and Wavy actually was the guy who convinced the management of the Gaslight Cafe to intersperse poetry. It was like a poetry, like a beat poetry mm. kind of club, you know, one of those places where people snap their fingers instead of applauded uh, to express approval. And uh, and Wavy convinced the management to let some folk singers have the stage at the Gaslight every now and then, Dylan being one of them. And, you know, I just missed that era, the real peak of the, of the, of, well, I missed the beat era pretty completely. I missed much of the folk era but I caught the tail end of it and I got to go to the gaslight. Uh, I saw Arlo Guthrie before Alice's restaurant was released, you know, doing Alice's restaurant. Uh, I saw doc Watson there, you know, uh, you know, tiny, tiny club. And that was, that that was an incredible privilege. I missed, I missed some of the places like folk city actually stayed open or reopened years later, but, uh, but just what was going on there was just, you know, you felt this kind of undercurrent of the world changing. And then when, you know, the political consciousness mixed in with that. And that was also something that was attributed, attributable for me to my love for music. Um, in 1964, uh, I got taken to a Pete Seeger concert, which was a benefit for, uh, it was, it was, it was uh, under the auspices of the uh, Congress of Racial Equality, and it was a benefit mm-hmm. for the families of three civil rights workers murdered in Mississippi. James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner. And it was one of the you know, most profound experiences I ever had because you know, there were speeches and there was, you know, there was mourning. Uh, and then Pete came out and just brought joy to the room, you know, and, you know, and that, that confluence of the joy that music can bring and that, you know, the striving for justice can bring just, you know, changed me forever too, you know, and there, there, I, there I was at 13, um, you know, doing that thing of linking arms with people and saying, we shall overcome at the end of the concert. And, you know, that was another one of those no turning back moments, you know? And so that, that's, that's why music yeah. and 
when I hear people say music has no place in politics, I just have to laugh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> those you are know? people who don't want there to be a place for those are politics. people that don't know any history. That's music it. That's has plates everywhere on the battlefield in politics. I mean, here you had uh, religion, spirituality, politics, music, all these things mixed together in this civil rights movement like what are you talking about you know (laughs) yeah what are you talking about no and and not just music all art i mean you know like yes you know everything do people think the grapes of wrath is just like a colorful travelogue of life in the southwest no (laughs) you know it's it's picasso's guernica just a painting with a nice horsey in it no you know i mean our artists have i mean one of the primary functions of art is to you know reflect the human condition and that that's in all areas and it can be about love and it can be about you know sorrow and loss but it it also has to be about you know just reflecting your your view of the society and it always has been always will be well throw out all your bob marley records throw out all your curtis mayfield records throw out like you know yeah (laughs) come on (laughs) So were you playing music at this point? Were you seeing all this stuff? <laughs> Your thumb came up again, Otia. Look. <laughs> well, Gary, if you'll thing. notice that thumb. Oh, yeah. it went away. Otiel's <laughs> iPad has a human thumb. And there it is. And it'll pop up every time it likes something Otiel says. It'll approve it. And well, now, now everybody witnessed it for the first <laughs> time. I mean, man, when we're chatting <laughs> off air, that thumb is... Very active. It does it if I put my thumb up for some time. Not this thumb. Wow. Amazing. And it's always the wrong color. Well, I, 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 get, I give a thumbs up to anything OTL has to say. So, you know. <laughs> I really want to know what that setting is, though. It's amazing. See, it won't do it with this thumb. Wow. And that time I just went like this, and I think it thought I was doing a thumbs up. Have you tried, other, have you tried giving it the finger? I'm not, I don't want to experiment any Off further. We'll try that. <laughs> Maybe, how about this one? Uh, no, apparently not. No, th- but then it popped up <laughs> underneath where you guys can't see it. Said, you are about to raise your hand. See, this is where all the surveillance stuff is just like, it just yeah. goes too far, you know? Really? <laughs> like, we don't need all these settings activated. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, were, were you playing music? Where were were we? you playing music at the this time yet? No, well, I kind of grew up, you know, with really like uninspiring music education around me. Like, you know, I played, I tried clarinet in school and that did not go well. Um, you know, I, I don't think I had the patience to get good at, at that point. And the teacher, the teacher just made it seem like every other subject that was boring to me, you know, and I don't really blame him, you know, being in the New York City public school system is just a, a hellish job, you know, and, and he probably, he probably, you know, just. He probably had dreams of being a great clarinet player. And it came to that, you know, like, like trying to make fourth graders not sound like, you know, squealing hogs, you know? So, uh, (laughs) um, and then I had some guitar lessons at home and again, I didn't feel inspired, you know, like that it's, it's kind of, if you teach someone the rudiments of music without the inspirational part, you know, it becomes like a chore, I think, you know? And and I, I don't think teachers are taught to do that enough, you know, like people, yeah. people are, and in educators in all subjects, you know, I had a handful of really great teachers in like in grade school and, and high school who really inspired me. And, you know, so I got good at the subjects they were teaching. 
you know, uh, yeah. but, but music was not one of them, unfortunately. So I fell into this mindset that, you know, in music, there are participants and there are spectators. And I became a very happy spectator. But actually, it was right around the time that the Grateful Dead captured my imagination. You know, maybe I thought, God, if these fools can do it, anyone can. Or, <laughs> not, not really. Uh, no, no, I, I was completely in awe of them. I, I don't want to I don't want to give it, you know. But- but it is but, the, it's the scene where you're invited to participate the most as a spectator. Very much so. And also I had friends who played guitar, um, you know, so uh, I actually got a better guitar in my hands than the one I had had for my lessons when I was 14. And, you know, I said, oh, I, I can I can figure out what a chord is. I can, you know, I, I can I, I can rough my way through a tune. And I picked it up pretty fast from there. So this is when I was about 18, 19. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, didn't have thoughts of playing for a living. Uh, you know, I just liked, I liked hanging out with friends and playing music. But then, you know, gradually I drifted into, into playing in bands, you know, uh, starting in the early 70s. Uh, actually, pretty shockingly early on, I did some sessions, you know, like I was actually in a studio recording. And I really took to that. You know, I started on guitar and then my friends talked me into being a bass player because the world is just too crowded with guitarists and they needed a bass player. So, and interestingly, they went to Phil Lesh. They, they, the dead, when the dead would come, this was in Boston at the time. I lived in Boston for a little while. And when the dead would come to Boston, these guys, he would come into this bookstore that like a metaphysical bookstore that these guys worked at. So, you know, they'd chat and they, they said to him, Hey, Phil, we've got this friend uh, and he plays guitar. Okay. But we think that he thinks like a bass player. And, so, and I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult, but they said, <laughs> they said, we think that he thinks like a bass player. And, you know, should we ask him to be in our band as a bass player? And Phil said, that's exactly how it happened to me. You know, because <laughs> Garcia told Phil he was going to be the bass player in the Warlocks and Phil had never picked up a bass in his life, but he had that musical mind. So, so Phil Lesh is directly responsible for my having you know, picked up the bass, which, <laughs> which was my primary instrument for, for quite a few years. I've gone nice. back to guitar more more frequently uh, in recent years, but yeah. Just out of curiosity, what was your go-to? Were you a Fender guy? A Man, I, guy? What? I when when my, my friend said, "Okay, we're going to buy you a bass," and we went we went down to New York, and we, there's this crazy little music store on West Fourth, in the same block where Bob Dylan lived around the time of Positively Fourth Street, called the Music Inn, and it is it's a music store that you never know when they're going to be open. You know, sometimes the guy who runs it is in there and he tells you he's closed. You know, it's like the guy has really no, 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 no particular interest in, in running a business that I could discern. But the that's a business whose mortgage is paid. Yeah. And it's a tiny, yeah. you, know, you know, it's a, t- a tiny little storefront. It's like, you know, and totally clogged with instruments, a, a lot of world world music instruments, gourds and, you know, and, yeah. and, and djembes and stuff like that. And he had some, you know, electric and, and acoustic guitars. And I found a b- barely pre-CBS Fender Precision bass for $250, <laughs> which I, I guess was, I guess was probably not a lot of money back then, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't cheap, but yeah. And it, it's still, it's the only bass I I've ever owned, you know? Really? Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's worth a lot more than $250. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it was it was it needed some work when I bought it. And the, the guy 
whoever owned it before me had like painted it white with what looked like a paint roller. You know, it was like just Aww. this horrible gloppy white paint on it. So, so we actually stripped the paint off and like it got it down to its natural, you know, natural finish. Uh, you know, it, it's not a pretty looking base, but it, it it needs it needs some work again. You know, being being as old as it is, but uh, but I I may get out of mothballs and start playing it again. Is it extremely heavy? It. It's not that heavy. Um, you know, the the precisions are you know fairly manageable. It's it's before base bases started getting absurdly heavy. You know, <laughs> yeah. we have we, we have Phil Lesh in part to blame for that because he he started getting those custom Olympic things with the incredible you know a lot of hardware in there yeah, and they an want entire ham radio inside of it. Right, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that base sometimes because to me, the, uh, the not pretty ones are the most beautiful when they're that old. Yeah, no, I, Just, I, I love the tone of this thing. And it especially recorded, it recorded really well. You know, we did some sessions with it in, in Boston. And it just had a really nice, nice tone. So happy I still know, have it. You know, you know, one of the things I think that's so beautiful about the Grateful Dead scene and the world and the community with which surrounds it is that take a look at like yourself and McNally and David and now Jesse Jarnow with the good old Grateful Dead cast and all of that. There seems to be a place for everyone in this scene. Like if there's something that you're into, whether it's art, whether it's, you know, journalism, whether it's the press stuff that McNally did and whatever, it seemed to be that there was a place to flourish and grow. And I really love that about this scene. And I've always kind of idolized you guys because you've had the chance to be, you know, journalists in a world that I wish I could be a journalist in. And then I realized, well, we kind of are with what we're doing, but you know, it's, I'm really, I just, I think it's really incredible to see the, the lineage and the outer shells of what the Grateful Dead, you know, like you started as a fan, like you said, you were happy to be a, a listener, but look at where, I mean, how many years later and it's, it's a, it's a career. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back after this. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at SmartWool. For more than 25 years, SmartWool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. What's up, everyone? I'm Mike. And I'm O'Teal. And these are our Sunset Lake CBD gummies that are almost gone. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned business that ships CBD products directly from their farm to your door. For years, Sunset Lake was a Vermont dairy farm producing milk for Ben & Jerry's ice cream. In 2018, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. And with a product for everyone, they offer pre-rolls, hemp cigars, and hemp flowers, as well as tinctures, gummies, and CBD... crafted coffee to help with stress aches and pains sunset lake cbd saves you money by shipping high quality cbd products directly from their farm to your door 
Want to know what I've been using a lot of, Oteal? This salve with the arnica uh, yeah. on, my, on my old bones. You get back from a show and you got tore ankle, rub a little bit of this on there. You're ready to dance the next day. And you know, S Sunset Lake uh, comes a time listeners can visit sunsetlakecbd.com and use promo code TIME for 20% off of their purchase. That's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code TIME. And tell them we sent you. Hey, everybody. Wednesday, November 17th at 9 p.m., Comes a Time is doing our first live event brought to you by Moment House. That's right, folks. We are having the inaugural Comes a Time Crystal Ball, and you're all invited. The time has come for you to be a guest. So all of our foot traffic, our bus riders, our space travelers, we want to hear from you. The wizard has invited us to his castle and he has summoned the crystal ball and that's where you will appear with thoughts, questions, comments. And Otil and I and you will be joining together to uh, make a very special event. So head on over to momenthouse.com and uh, we will be providing the links and we really want you to join us. We thought, right, Oteal, for our first event, what better guest than our new friends? Absolutely. So send in a video question. Uh, the best questions will get priority, and our Patreon uh, patrons will get priority. Attendance is mandatory, but not required. So we love you guys, and uh, we will see you live at the Crystal Ball. Who was your Gary Lambert? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I, I I read a lot of the really early rock journalism, you know, uh Cream magazine like, and stuff. Not I was I was more early Rolling Stone. Um, you know, I I have, you know, some copies of Rolling Stone still from their first year of existence. Wow. Uh at um and Crawdaddy, which was actually predated Rolling Stone. It was it was out about a year before Rolling Stone. Uh, very, very low key. You know, they never had any major distribution or anything like that. The Village Voice here in New York had really excellent music journalism. You know, it's funny, rock journalism got invented, you know, at a certain point because, you know, when the Beatles came over, you know, newspapers would send, you know, their, their you know, sort of most condescending music critic to go put it down, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so so rock, rock journalism had to kind of had to kind of grow out of thin air. Um, and then, you know, more sympathetic and perceptive writers started getting jobs at daily papers. And then you had the, the underground press and you had the music press that emerged and became a, a pretty big deal. Um, so yeah, some of those early music journalists inspired me. I actually, my first, after being a fan with the dead and, and, achieving some degree of comfort in like, you know, going up to band members and talking to them before there were, you know, huge phalanxes of security around them. Um, my first real entree into the scene behind the scenes was uh, I was having an early sort of not entirely successful go at trying to be a, a music journalist. And I, I decided that a great void in the world was that Bob Weir was not appreciated enough as a guitar player. Um, because people always focus on the lead guitar player. And Bob had this role that rhythm guitar was not adequate to describe, you know, because <laughs> he provided yeah. all this, you know, in the moment orchestration for the music and provided this really eccentric foundation that Garcia could solo over, you know? So I said, Bob, where's just 
a total mofo of a guitarist and the world doesn't know it, you know? So I decided I was going to write an article for guitar player magazine. Um, and just as a freelancer, uh, without guitar playing, no, without guitar player, knowing it, I just said, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to do this article. Then I'm going to sell it to them. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. And so, so I walked up to Bobby at a show in at Boston garden, 73. And I said, Hey, Bob, you know, uh, I'd kind of like to try writing an article about you for guitar player. He said, yeah, <laughs> you bet. <laughs> so, so we actually wound up doing a series of interviews from the end of 73, a few months into 74. Um, and he gave me like five and a half hours total time, you know, oh, wow. mostly done in hotel rooms <laughs> after gigs uh, with some wild uh, peripheral sounds on the, uh, on the tapes uh, <laughs> of, of, of Grateful Dead debauchery, which I will never expose to the world. Um, but, uh, but also, uh, you know, he was incredibly thoughtful and incredibly generous with his time and incredibly reflective. And it got really deep. You know, we talked wow. very, very deeply about music and the article never got published. Uh, <laughs> The reason, the primary reason is that when we concluded these, these interviews, the Grateful Dead scrapped everything. This is when they went on the two-year hiatus. Oh. So, so at the end of 1974, they said, you know, okay, the wall of sound is coming down. You know, Bobby switched guitars and rigs and everything. So <laughs> everything I'd interviewed him about, except the more philosophical stuff, was obsolete. You know. Oh, man. And I actually took, I took the transcripts to, uh, to uh, I actually transcribed the interviews by hand because I couldn't type and, uh, you know, didn't want to hire, I was too poor to hire a transcription service. So uh, I went to Guitar Player, went to their offices, and they said, this is great, but the Grateful Dead aren't doing anything right now. <laughs> oh, man. And so I said, well, maybe we'll take it, we'll take it up after the dead get back on the road. And we just, we just, kind, of, we just kind of never did, you know, like I was, I was trying, I was trying to survive on all kinds of levels. Bobby moved on to other things. So the article never got published, but uh, Dennis Dennis McNally quoted like one line from it uh, in in his in his biography, but when I handed him the transcripts, he said, "Weir has never talked this much to anybody about anything." <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I was very flattered by that. But what came out of that was a friendship with Bobby, you know, and uh, yeah, you know, and and then and and then you know and then you know getting into a show anytime I wanted, which was the real bonus. Um, yeah. And and through that, I became more comfortable and conversant with the other band members. And simultaneously, uh, as that was developing in the early 80s, I got a job with Bill Graham. So was working with the dead before I was working for the dead, you know, for, for mm. a number of years. Um, so, uh, and I got, to, I got to have some amazing things happen even before I had the job with the dead. Um, Phil Lesh and I did a radio show together for eight years uh, on KPFA in Berkeley. And, uh, the way that came about was uh, KPFA had me host um, a couple of dead shows that they, the dead were big supporters of KPFA Pacifica foundation radio in Berkeley. So they let the dead broadcast um, some of their shows first from the Greek theater uh, in Berkeley uh, as part of their fundraising efforts. And uh, so they also got to do the show, uh, the new year's Eve show at the end of 1986 and so for that show, I was talking to the people at KPFA and they said, well, what should we do during the break? You know, uh, you know, we could try to get interviews with band members, but that's always hard. You know, you could go out and do, a, you know, 
man in the hall thing with a microphone talking to deadheads. And I said, oh, man, that could be that, <laughs> that could be dangerous. You know, <laughs> like the lady that called him when I was on you guys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's all that's, the rails. Right. The, the, yeah. So 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 I had I had this little flash of inspiration. I said, why don't we let the Grateful Dead be guest music programmers for the break? Mm. So I'll ask the band members to pick a couple of songs they would like us to play Brilliant. during the breaks. So, so they'll they'll be our little they'll be our DJs. And so Bobby came up with he wanted he wanted Otis Redding and a Frank Sinatra Duke Ellington collaboration uh, on a song called Poor Butterfly. Uh, Mickey, of course, wanted something from you know Papua New Guinea or the or the rainforest in, in the Amazon or something like that. Uh, Billy said, uh, you know. Uh, any Coltrane cut with Elvin Jones on it. Um, uh, I don't remember what Brent said, um, but uh, I, I, I asked Phil and Phil said, well, the thing I'd like you to play, you couldn't play because it's an hour long symphony by a dead British composer named Havergal <laughs> Brian. <laughs> uh, so, so Phil did, Phil did not submit a choice, um, but Shortly after that New Year's Eve, I, I sent a note to Phil and said, hey, you know, anytime you want to come on KPFA and play an hour-long symphony by Havergal Brian, I'm sure you'd be most welcome. And Phil came back to me with, well, why just do that once? Why not make a regular show out of it? Wow. And then I then invited me to co-host. And I, I was like, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> so, nice. so we did this show um, once a month for eight years um and it was originally called rex radio because it was under the you know is to to highlight some of the composers that the rex foundation um supported and spotlighted and then we changed it at phil's request to eyes of chaos veil of order um <laughs> which nice simple which, name which summed up a That's lot of the beautiful yeah which summed up a lot of the music we played you know it, it yeah. was uh uh it could be the freest free jazz, or it could be these elaborately composed symphonies, or it could be electronic music. Um, one show, you know, the show was 60 minutes long. One show was about 59 minutes of Cecil Taylor. And, uh, and Phil, and basically it was a solo piano thing. And Phil said, ladies and gentlemen, Cecil Taylor. And the piece, this incredible torrent of, of manic wow. piano energy ensued at the end. Phil said, that was Cecil Taylor. Good night, everybody. <laughs> that's, that, that's all we had time for. Um, and, uh, and then I, you know, I had input into what we played. And I got to turn Phil onto one of my favorite bands, uh, Peter Applebaum and the Hieroglyphics Ensemble from Berkeley, yeah. um, which was a band that was formed when all these guys were in high school in the late 70s and was so incredibly visionary. It was like, incredibly high quality, almost Ellington quality jazz composition, but with a foundation of all these world music, Afrobeat and, and, you know, Afro Cuban music and you know, just reggae and ska and all that, but with, you know, this incredible jazz component to it. And Phil flipped over that band and not only had us play it on the show, but then they became the recipients of the Rex Foundation's Ralph J. Gleason Award and were invited to open for the dead on New Year's Eve wow. uh, in 1988, I think it was. So, you know, 
stuff getting to getting to help stuff like that happen became one of my great joys in in working with the dead and uh one of my favorite shows with phil on on eyes of chaos um and this was my doing uh we we played a a show that was all kind of cartoon inspired or comedy inspired so you you will like this mike we played bill frizzell playing a score that he he put together for a buster keaton film um <laughs> we we played we played a uh, a john adams piece called um chamber symphony which adams had said was inspired by trying to compose while his kid was watching looney tunes on tv and then our and then we played an actual score from a roadrunner cartoon <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said this is my kind of radio show man you that's know, so, fantastic radio yeah. show absolutely yeah, yeah so, um, such a so, great score it's yeah yeah you know you know who's you know what's interesting is on uh on one of your uh sister stations fish's uh sirius xm channel john fishman does a show called the errant path and it's him making all these weird picks and it's yeah. i've i've learned about so many different bands because of that and and that's the thing I think that, you know, it's interesting how you said when you came into it, you kind of like, you know, the dead was playing a bunch of the music that you had already liked. I learned from the Grateful Dead about so many of the other music, like, right. you know, thing. And that that's the beautiful thing that I found in it was I always like to listen to what my favorite musicians are listening to. So yeah. that's super neat that you thought of that. Like, I think that's a really brilliant thing because I'm always I always like to ask people that I always think if I can ask my heroes, something it's always like, what are you listening to? Or yeah. what are you, you know, like, that's always the stuff I'm interested in. Yeah. And the, and the dead were always listening to, you know, really non-standard stuff, obviously, you know, I mean, you know, Mickey's contribution, you know, to, to, to our understanding of world music has just been so enormous His work with the Smithsonian and the library of Congress. And, you know, uh, he had this thing called the endangered music series on Ryko disc where mm -hmm the music was literally endangered both because the recordings were old and deteriorating, but also because it was the music of cultures that were being threatened by industrial encroachment or political turmoil and all of that, you know, so a lot of the music from the rainforests, you know, people are being pushed out of their, their homes because of, you know, logging and all of that stuff. So yeah, Mickey, Mickey has been really heroic in that regard. You know, and the dead are the dead were always great about acknowledging their sources and and saying, yeah. you know, this this is what turned us on. And, you know, so I always caution people against, you know, being sort of, you know, deadheads in the deadhead bubble all the time where you're talking about, you know. I always say, you know, I, I don't care about comparing, you know, uh, 1229 77 at Winterland to uh, to 213 70 at at Fillmore East. I want to compare it to some night Coltrane played the village Vanguard or, you know, or the night the right of spring premiered in Paris. You know, yes. you know I want to put it in a, a much broader cultural context. You know? Well, I mean, that's what I think it definitely uh, follows the band. It's a wide, you know, earth is such a great tapestry, you know, and we get so just myopic about stuff. We're just like, I don't know. I'm, I'm... Yeah, no, you're right. And you know, the thing that we were thinking about, uh, I had a conversation the other day with a friend about uh, the eternal clock versus the earth clock and how when you tap into that place that either music or skiing for some or comedy or 
meditation or whatever, when you kind of get your mind off the earth time, right? How long has that song been? How much time do we have left? What time's the lights going to come on like that? All these things that are just kind of driven by anxiety and you're able to tap into a time and space don't matter. Um, that's the beauty. That's, that's where love is, right? That's where love lives. And, and that's what this music has done for so many of us, but also it's the ability to like dive into it deeply and learn more about the things that Mickey and the things that Phil, like all the, the fact that, you know, you went to every one of them and said, what would you like us to play? I mean, that's, I, I think that's the, that's the important thing. And that's what you guys are doing right now. Latil, yeah. you know, yeah. is it's just given us that like a break from the earth clock. Yeah. You know, there, yeah, there's a really cool uh, recording that I think you can access on uh, archive.org of Phil and Jerry doing a guest DJ spot on KMPX in San Francisco in 1967. And they basically went into the studio with Tom Donahue, who was the great, one of the founders of progressive FM radio. Uh, and he just let them, let them have free reign to play whatever they want. So you got a movement of Charles Ives fourth symphony, and then you got Lou Rawls singing something, and then you got an old jug band song. Uh, and then in between Jerry and Phil talking like, you know, enthusiastically and hilariously. And yeah, as, as those two guys could do when they were ripping yes. off each other. So uh, if you, if you just go to archive and you, you know, write something like you know, uh, Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh, you know, KMPX uh, 1967, you'll probably be able to find it. In I'll the search. Have to check that out. <laughs> really, really cool to listen to. Um, yeah. You know, and, and what, you know, sometimes <clears throat> when I lament, you know, the end of that kind of progressive radio, it's not out of nostalgia. You know, it's, 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 I'm lamenting something that was a vision for the future that, you know, that is now, you know, there's been kind of a death of eclecticism in radio. Everything is like aimed at a little mm. niche, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, totally. You know, and, you know, much as I enjoy being on a Grateful Dead channel on Sirius XM, it's also confining to someone with my kind of taste. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, I'm glad that John Fishman has that show, you know, to, to, to broaden, broaden the fish audience's exposure to that kind of stuff. But nostalgia can be a really dangerous thing. And a lot of radio is nostalgia driven now. You know, yeah. what, what was progressive rock radio is now classic rock radio. So you're hearing this very small handful of songs that were deemed classics back then. You're not hearing a lot of the weirder stuff that was, you know, more appealing to me. Um, <laughs> totally. And yet, you know, I mean, nostalgia is a really, it's a very natural human impulse, you know, to, to remember, you know, lost times or to ha have not been born in those lost times and wish you were there, you know, but it's also, it can be a really dangerous thing. You know, it's, yeah. it, it can, it can really, it can prevent progress or impede progress. And, you know, it's also, I think the reason that, you know, a philosophy reducible to make America great again on a red baseball cap can be so popular <laughs> because America wasn't that great back that's then. That's what I'm saying. See, <laughs> yeah. that's where I like what the again is the problem in that statement. Right. Like, what does again mean? Right. Again? Well, well, for the people. And for when. The, and when yeah, exactly. Yeah. For, for the people who wear those red hats. It's, oh, America, America, where you know, those people over there weren't so uppity, you know, yeah. or, or, or women did, thought they were you know, supposed to have full citizenship or, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah. yeah or so when, the, when everybody else, when they were in the closet instead of me. 
Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a coming back out of the closet party, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> From, so, so, so I'm, I, it's funny. It's funny being a deadhead and also being sort of a crusader against nostalgia, you know, but, but, <laughs> But but the nostalgic aspects of the deadhead thing are the are the parts that appeal to me the least, you know, and it's also it's also kind of the way the media perceived the Grateful Dead for a long time. And it's incredibly shallow way you mm-hmm. know, when the dead got really popular. The the standard operating procedure was we'll send a camera crew to the parking lot. We'll find the people who look the most like, you know, frozen in time hippies who just got thawed out. And, you know, and and the hook for the Grateful Dead became, you know. They were here in the 60s. They're still here. Isn't that amazing? You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's really it's really lame and shallow and it does a disservice to just how deep and, you know, and thoughtful and, and profound that that art was that those guys were making. And it seems maybe you can figure out a way to do a show that's like the roots of the Grateful Dead to show people all the, the wide spectrum of references yeah that they were tapping into because there's so much i mean music history just in their set list yeah. like you're going to go through all these different categories you know kind of like what fishman's doing i guess well you know, you know and i i have to give a shout out to the the folks that make that good old grateful dead cast i mean that yeah. is just one yes. of the most if you're interested in the history of the grateful dead on a day-to-day and an influential bit they are doing an absolutely phenomenal job. And they just did a show, an episode about St. Louis 71, 72, 73 releases that came out. And what was neat about it was to hear there was like a pedal steel music store that Jerry would, every time he was in town would swing through and play with the store owner. And then there was a night when they were staying at the airport hotel where they sat in with a band playing a bar mitzvah. And all of these interesting little things about them, not the grateful, the mystical grateful that just like guys that were, you know, want, wanting to go hang at the guitar shop and just be musicians, you know, and, and all that stuff. And it's, that's the cool thing to learn about now throughout these, these episodes and these, and these interviews, you know, and you've been on it and I've, I've heard yeah. a bunch from you. I, I listen to it religiously and I, and I think it's, uh, it really is interesting to see the lineage and the, that they left their, everyone in America seems to have their little grateful dead memory story. And it's, you know, interesting the way that they would tap into a certain place and it would become near and dear to their hearts. And well, that, that music, there's always that music. He's into pedal steel music. He's into, banjo. you know, that's what, yeah. yeah, that's what's so fascinating to me about it. Like, you know, you hear, uh, like love light, you know, it's like, okay, so let's play everybody some Bobby blue bland, like a bunch of, you know, and then you hear Bobby blue bland's version of stormy Monday and you realize, Oh, that's the one Greg is tapping into with the almond brothers. You know, it's like, there's all, you know, there's a, there's a whole, there's many uh, branches of the tree to like climb, you know, (laughs) Yeah, you people know, if they're interested, you know. Yeah. And and again, you know, because of the way things are in our culture, you know, some people's only exposure to the blues will be like through cream or, you know, or Eric yeah, and and they, which is they, good, but but they're not encouraged to go back to the roots a lot of the time. Yeah. It's like, oh, this this is what it is. You know, I was lucky in that, you know, I first saw BB King when I was 16, you know, and wow. and and that was that was another one of those 
transformative things. Yeah, saw, he was at peak powers. Yes, and saw <laughs> Muddy, and saw, and saw Muddy, and saw you know Helen Wolf, yeah. and them, you know, and and so you know, I'm not going to get as excited by hearing some British guys play it. Although to their to their great credit, they yeah. loved they loved it and they played it, you know. And they created their own thing that is its own thing. But like for me, like I would almost do something very bad karmically to get to see Howlin' Wolf live, because um, I mean you are so blessed if you got to see that human being live, man, to you know, emote yeah. that kind of. But Colonel Bruce used to talk about. All, I just missed, it, you know, like yeah. that's yeah. Wolf Wolf was like a shaman, man. I mean, I I actually saw him late in life, and his powers were somewhat diminished. I mean, I've seen the film clips of him at his peak, and those are yeah, just unbelievable. But the last I saw him twice, and the last time there was a there was a, a a blues bar in Cambridge or Somerville, Massachusetts, called Joe's Place, uh, and it was Wolf maybe a year or two before he died. Uh, and he had to sit down for most of the show. He had heart problems. Mm. And, ah, he was so big. And, and yeah, and he had this you know, incredible band. Hubert Sumlin wasn't with him anymore, but it was like Eddie Shaw mm. and the Wolfpack, and they were killer. And, yeah. and and Eddie Shaw would do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of emceeing the show and talking to the crowd. They placed Mr. Metal so Wolf could rest. And Wolf was actually like yeah. popping heart pills, sitting in a chair. Whoa. And he kind of looked like slumped and diminished, you know, and yeah. he's popping heart pills. Then his time came to get up and sing, and suddenly <laughs> it was like he became monumental and just yeah, you know, and and is crawling around on his hands and knees and howling, you know, and doing everything you could ever hope for from Wolf. Wow. And then yeah, and then his and then after a couple of songs, he'd slump back in the chair, you know. And but he reserved his power for those moments. And yeah, I saw he, char- yeah, he went back to like the charge that. port when Elvin was like came. He was. I think he died not much longer after that um, at the blue note. And he came down the stairs kind of slow, you know? Yeah. But then man, when he sat down, it was just like, wow. I just was like, whoa. Like you say, all of a sudden they just magnify and yeah. then they shrink back. You know, it's like yeah. it's energy conservation, but they actually had enough to like magnify like that still is wow. like a peacock. Yeah. Yeah, my last, nature. Yeah. My, my last experience seeing Elvin were like that too, like very frail. And, you know, like I also, I saw Count Basie having to be like, he, he was, he like wheeled up to the stage on one of those little, you know, scooter things, you know, and had to be helped yeah. onto the stage. But once he was behind the piano, you know, yeah, with, you know, Count Basie big band, you know, like, like 15 pieces. Oh, yeah. And he, you know, Basie always played very minimally and, you know, he was a real physical player but it still felt like all the music was coming from him. You know, that whole band, yeah. like all the music was radiating from his mind into their bodies. And, you know, I'm, I'm so, I had these incredible privileges like that. Never saw a cold, got into Coltrane a little too late to see him. Um, yeah. But, but I, in that lineage, I saw what maybe the definitive jazz club experience of my life forever. Oh, and ever. I can't wait to hear what, this. Pharaoh Sanders at the village Vanguard wow. in, in, in early 1972 um mm. i had just turned 21 and uh oh my and, god and it was two sets pharaoh had like a fairly so- piano drums congas he had hannibal marvin peterson on trumpet um he had i think at that point he only had cecil be on bass uh, 
for a sure. while in that period, it would be and Stanley Clark on bass when Stanley was like 19 or so. Um, wow. And uh, but they played music that was so incendiary, so intense, so relentless, you know, yeah. that, that and I stayed for both sets. So uh, and this this the visual metaphor of this climbing out of the village at that subterranean dungeon that is the village vanguard uh, into a cool early spring New York night and the people standing on the sidewalk had steam coming off them. Wow. <laughs> the entire audience was steaming from that. And I said, I said, that's all I've ever asked for from jazz. You know, that moment. <laughs> that is a beautiful New York experience. Had, if, I'd only, if I'd only had a video camera at that moment, man, it was so good. And it, it just exemplified what the music had done to all of us, you know. <laughs> that's awesome, man. What would you most like to see that you missed? I missed so much. I yeah. mean, I missed everything. Marley Hendrix, like you, yeah. you name it. Dwayne, yeah. a lot of the guys that I, I just barely saw Jerry. I saw Jerry once, like at the end, you right. know, close to the end. But when I think I, for myself, it's like Charlie Christian. Like yeah. if I could go yeah. back in yeah. time and just, and Howlin' Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Those um, two. Yeah. yeah. Well, I never saw Ellington. You know, and that would have been. I did at four made, years oh. old. I actually saw. I got a picture of me with Duke, me oh, and Kofi. I'm four. And Kofi's seven. It's on oh. my Instagram. Oh, I gotta wow. say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I so can't I remember it, but <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah, Duke, I um, I mean, yeah, you know, I would, I wouldn't hate being in Kansas City in the 30s. You know, uh, you know, when when, you know, just just Basie and Jay McShann and all those territory bands were playing and, and yeah. Jim Mills, you know, that's that's made it the I, I, I would have loved to be around for the whole bebop era. You know, uh, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't have minded hearing Beethoven blow some changes, you know, either. You know, I mean, now that you think about it, that's the thing, you know, I, I, I run yeah. into I run into people all the time who are envious of me because of what I got mm -hmm. to see. And I say everybody's envious of something. Exactly. You know? yeah. Everybody, everybody had a period they just missed, you know. So don't get hung up about, you know, you missed a golden era or and also don't get hung about hung up about insisting that the era you were in is more golden than the one that people are experiencing now. Amen. You know, I get, yeah, that's you know, I, the key right there. You know, I, I I get into that thing with with the dead with the deadheads who are like deeply resistant to everything that's happened after, you know, including Dead and Company, you know, and are complaining yeah. about the tempos and are complaining about this or complaining about that and saying it'll never be the same again. And I just say it was never meant to be the same. Again. Yeah. Miles it's, was never the same. You could take any right. period of his career. And while he was alive, it was never the same again. So he was right. just like, get over it. We change. I'm not yeah. the same as I was three years ago, five years ago. Right. Like, come on. Right. You know, right. you know, it was so incredible at Fairly Well in Chicago was to watch these older deadheads kind of arms crossed, grumpy, like, let's see what this Trey guy, he thinks he could do, Jerry, baby, baby, yeah. you know, and then I watch him sobbing and holding each other during, yeah. you know, like a crazy figures or something. And I'm like, that's my boy. Yeah, He's doing you, know, it, you know, it's trying to capture that spirit of it. It's not trying to. Right. Yeah. Why are you putting that such a thing? Yeah. Yeah, bringing you your keep own the preconceived. Yeah, right. You're and, already saying it's going to stink. It didn't start yet. Right. And and keeping, you know, keeping the spirit alive by moving it forward rather exactly. than fr freezing it in amber. You know, it's like, I mean, that's 
that's why Dead & Company has been so satisfying to me because it's impossible to do anyway. Yeah. Like yeah. how could you can't find anyone like Mike Gordon told me, you know, he's, he knows everything about Phil's rig. And he said he got to play Phil's bass. Like Phil handed it to him. Mm-hmm. He's got the pick. It's his rig. It's his. And I said, what is he said? Didn't sound anything like Phil. And he's got the super elaborate rig. Right? right. So when then in the dressing room, they ran over something in the dressing room and there's this little bitty like Eden combo amp, which is just a teeny mini fridge. And he said, Phil plugged into that thing and he had the same sound. Right. And I was like, it's in his regard. If I replicate the rig, if I get the exact and just spend my entire life, I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah. You know, so we can't even freeze it if we wanted to. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. All you could do is count it off and go. Yeah. And, and, and hope also, you're tuned into that same frequency. You know? Right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and when I hear a lot of the guitarists, they're obviously incredibly talented. A lot of the guitarists who stick the closest to the Jerry model and they really are getting close to the tone and they're playing the mood yeah. and they're, you know, it's still okay. Well, the restriction you're putting on yourself is you're not inventing something in the moment. You yeah, know, right. and that's that was yeah. the magic. That was the magic of the dead. So the the way to best pay homage to it is to keep inventing, you know, or exactly. you know, and and keep keep elaborating on it. And that's Dead and Company does that as beautifully as anyone. And it's so incredibly due to the mixture of the guys who were instrumental in inventing this music and the people, yeah. OTL and John and Jeff are bringing so many new ideas to this music. And the, I had a very controversial thought recently, and that is that for me, to my ears, I am hearing more new ideas expressed in Dead & Company right now than I heard for like big swaths of the 1980s by the Grateful Dead. Okay. And that's... I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, and, and please, you know, send, send your, send your, threats send your to me. hate mail, <laughs> but, but, but I, this is not a pejorative against the Grateful Dead because no, in, I all, hear you. In, in all creative careers, you know, the major innovation happens closer to the beginning. Yeah. And then you get good at what you do. And then you sort of, you sort of codify it, you solidify it, you know, and, for me, the, for me, the dead, I saw amazing Grateful Dead shows in the 1980s and, and into the 90s. Um, but there there wasn't so much that idea of something new being invented every day. It was like, these guys are really good at this and they're doing it really well. Um, and I would weep at a good morning do in any era, you yeah. know, and, 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 you know, the music still served the moment beautifully. But it was, you know, it's, it, that's true of Picasso. It's true of Ellington. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's one it's, of the stages. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Louis, Louis Armstrong invented, you know, so much of the music of the 20th century. But after, say, the 1930s, his, his music wasn't about invention anymore. It was about, you know, like restatement and re, rethinking of, yeah. of, of some of his ideas. You know, and of course, he couldn't sustain those incredible chops he had when he was 20 years old either, yeah. you know, but he learned how to express it with diff- a different kind of nuance. So the the refinements in Grateful Dead music for me in the, in the latter part of the band's career was more about, you know, restating what they already knew. Whereas with Dead & Company, you know, 
you know, I'll say, did Ocho just play a, a bass line from Stevie Wonder? Or did he, did, did, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, you did. I, 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 I think I called you on it at a sound check. Was that, was that too high you were playing there <laughs> in the middle of Shakedown? You know, and, and, you know, John both reveres Jerry's playing, but also has totally his own thing and his affinity for blues and R&B. And, of course, Jeff, you know, is like yeah encyclopedia an encyclopedia of of the jazz idiom but he can also go johnny johnson on you or you know or fats domino on you or whatever yeah. you know when, when when the moment calls for it and so that's when I, when i say i'm hearing more new ideas expressed it is not a knock on the grateful dead it's it's yeah. it's it's a tribute to the vitality and the endless possibilities of this music yeah. you know we and had it, an interesting thing happen the other night when um um, Billy got his upper respiratory thing and had to sit out for about four nights and Jay Lane came in Yeah, and we noticed right from the first night, um, that it was like, um, it changed the dynamic where we were like this tight funk band. Yes. You know, it was weird because like we, you know, like when shakedown happened or certain tunes we were having, we we're like, Oh my God, like we're in this. It was just like a funk band, all, which really lit Mayer up because that's his thing. Like, you know, yeah. and it was weird. Like the, the four nights that Jay was there, it like changed. It was like somebody switched some DNA a little bit, you know, and it was just a completely new thing. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is an interesting take on even just dead and company, you know, yeah. much less. The Grateful, the Grateful Dead and the whole, yeah. you know, it was, it was really fascinating. And I thought, well, this is as it should be, like it should shift, like some, there should be some kind of sh shift or else we're just doing the same thing, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, and you know, what's so incredible too, is if you think about just even this past year, right. You had, you know, I mean, past like, you know, year or two, the Wolf Brothers, the Wolf Bros, Bob Weir and Wolf Bros, him doing that, uh, j-rad doing the incredible job that they're doing billy and the kids i mean yeah. everybody doing and like O'Teal and friends when you're doing your shows and it's just all of the various takes on these songs phil and friends i just caught yeah. them with with elliot peck and graham and everybody and it's just each of it each each iteration you know if i've seen every one of those five bands i just said play a uh, eyes of the world they're all different yeah. But they're all have that same beautiful spine, you know, yes, and it's yeah, just that's the thing that's so incredible is that you can hear it in all these different takes. And I love Bobby and the Wolf Bros. And I love what Billy's doing. And I love yeah. Phil and Friends and Dead and Co. and J-Rads. I mean, they're just, they're all phenomenal because they're not trying to be the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Yeah, And, and that's it's, the best thing, you know. Yeah, I, I saw a couple of the Phil shows. I saw one with the, the, the PLQ and then I saw – the first night of that other lineup, uh, I didn't see Elliot. I saw Amy Helm uh, the first oh, night. Okay, yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, both nights were tremendous. The the one that had more unexpected elements, the the second lineup was was more fun for me. But you know, the PLQ is wonderful, and they really deliver the goods. Jimmy Herring does an interesting thing. I I, I noticed this the first time I saw him play with Phil. Uh, they play Scarlet Begonias, and Jimmy solos for about like three choruses. The first chorus, he replicates Jerry's solo from the record 
almost note for note. Ah. Wow. And then, and then, and then, and then the second chorus is like a little bit of Jerry and a little bit of Jimmy. And then the third chorus is pure Jimmy. Nice. And I, and I talked to him about that and he said, he said, yeah, I wanted to honor that solo as a composition, yeah. you know, like as a beautiful, yeah. spontaneous composition and then take it where I could take it. And I just, I love Jimmy for doing that, you know? Ah, that's um, amazing. He's so yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, I, I love all the directions this music can be taken in. I love the fact that it is so self-renewing, you know, and it keeps me so interested in it where, you know, if they were just playing exactly the way they did in any of my favorite eras, you know, yeah. what, what would be the point? That's what the tapes are for. You know? That's what the tapes are for. That's right. Miles is Miles Davis is pretty amazing in that respect that he just purposely like oh, yeah. destroyed the chalkboard. He's like, right. I'm not doing that anymore. Right. I'm fine. Like, I'm, fi- I'm, I'm, fire- I'm firing the whole band, you know, <laughs> and, no, and really. me, <laughs> like, I'm just going to put myself in a completely new. Yeah. Un- it's yeah. Something. Are you territory. still playing at all, Gary? Uh, haven't played outside the house. Well, no one's played outside the house for a year and a half, but <laughs> I, I, I haven't gigged with anybody in a very long time. I'm kind of getting hungry to do that again. Uh, well, I talked about an idea with you, which we won't discuss tonight because it's still top secret. But uh, um, there's some hints to what it, what it is in the conversation we've just been having. But I've still got it up my sleeve. One of these days we're going to do this. Russo is down to do it. Oteil said he's down to do it. Uh, uh, and it, it, it's, it's sort of it speaks to everything I want to do with this music, which is really honor it and subvert it at the same time. You know? <laughs> can that be a, can that be a secret for our Patreon? Uh, well, I'm just joking. I'm just well, kidding. well, we, I, I actually, I actually had a tentative date for this, this project of mine, uh, at Brooklyn bowl, um, before that it landed yeah. in pandemic pandemic time. So, uh, I'm going to talk to Pete again and yeah, that it's a matter of hurting all the players, you know, like making sure everyone's available and, yeah. and, and into doing it. But it's, I, I, if it sounds to the world, like it sounds in my head, it's going to be pretty cool. <laughs> I love it. I heard Rousseau and O'Teal and dead. And yeah, that's and, all I need. And, and, and I can guarantee that I will be the least competent musician on that stage. <laughs> well, what did Keezy say about what's that Keezy quote? I'd rather be on stage with the worst band in the world than and the audience watching the best band. Some I can't remember. Right. 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 <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. No, I, I think we gotta play for fun, man. Yeah, you no, know, let's do it. we'll do it. Like the the uh even if it's not professional, you know. Yeah, no, because we have whatever we have so much shared, you know, vocabulary and passion to, to, to explore, you know. It's gonna go off the rails, I can tell yeah. you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, can, can, can I can I tell a favorite story? getting to be a fly on the wall, you know, at, at Dead and Company sound checks and stuff like that was really fun for me, you know, because I I was seeing that relationship develop between the musicians and seeing, you know, like like whose frame of reference was, you know, was was up to snuff and all that. There was, I think it was the day that you got handed the lead vocal on Fire on the Mountain. And you sound checked it at Fenway. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And and uh, a- after after you sang, you know, your first couple of choruses on it, uh, <laughs> Mayor said to you, "Man, I really like what you were doing with that kind of you know, the behind the beat thing on the vocal, you know, c- kind of a Jay Dilla thing." And <laughs> and and you could you could see O'Teal and Jeff getting the reference, and the old guys in the band you know, right over the head. <laughs> 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 but, that, but, but that speaks to what's wonderful about this band is like you know, the the yeah. 
the, the stuff that the new guys bring to bear, you know, really it, it affects ah, the music in cool ways. Yeah. <laughs> man gary you're the best dude thank you so oh, much man. for joining us this is incredible this it's over already <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, this 20. is re- this has really been fun you know and wow. uh you know uh please come back you, and do it again I, i'd love to i'll tell you it comes to time and uh the good old grateful dead cast all your podcasting needs are met right there folks you know i mean there, there you have it I, there are other good That's podcasts out there but but really really great to be with you guys uh thank you man let's all hang in person as soon as we can oh Please. man i'm telling you jeez if you'd like to let's. come to a stand-up show anytime too i'll text you and uh come hang out if you'd like you know cool man i would love to awesome awesome thank right. you guys for listening osiris